What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Today, I have an experiment that I want to try out on all of us. I have a kind of a half-filled bottle of water, and I have a bottle of brand new cooking oil. And so the experiment is simply this. I've been told, and maybe you know this, maybe you don't know this, maybe you've tried this, maybe you haven't tried this, but if you take cooking oil and mix it with water, what I am told is it will automatically itself. How many of you think that is true? How many of you think that is true? All right, well, let's give this a shot. You ready? This is not a 100% organic extra virgin olive oil. I got this at the Dollar Tree for $1.25. I might add, <laughs> but let's see here. Oh, got to take this up. It is brand new. I told you. Let's see here. The moment of truth. Boom. Sure enough. It separates. Now, I wonder if I were to, let's pour a little bit more in here. If I were to close the cap, I wonder if it would, and then shake the bottle, I wonder if it will still automatically separate. Let's give it a try here. You didn't know you were going to science class today, did you? (laughs) No, you did not. Let's see here. Not looking too good so far, but let's just wait a few minutes here. Gonna take it a minute. I see it. Yeah, I don't. If you if you're too far in the back, you may not be able to tell. But at the bottom, you're starting to see the regular waters beginning to separate here. Yeah. So sure enough, it does separate when you mix cooking oil and water together. Now, why in the world would I bring this up? Why would why would we be looking at this? Well, just as water and oil do not mix together, our culture repels the idea of sin and repels not just the idea of sin but they repel and react against what the bible declares to be the truth about sin and that's the title of my message today is the truth about sin in fact i'm sure you're asking well what exactly is the truth about sin well i'm glad you asked because the unraveling reality is we are all sinners And we are all destined for the judgment of God. The unwanted truth about this whole situation is God is light, as we read earlier in the book of 1 John, and in him there is no darkness at all. None. Nada. Zilch. Zero. No sin at all is a part of God. He is perfect. He is holy. He is just. And the truth is he cannot allow sin into heaven, which you know this. Romans chapter 3 speaks about how there is none righteous. That is, there is none that does good. There is none that levels up and measured up to God's perfect holy standard found in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 3, the Bible literally says that we have all sinned. 
We have all, in short definition, missed the mark. In Romans chapter 6, it says, for the wages of sin is death. So because of our sin, we will die and we deserve not just death, but eternity separated from God. But the good news is that, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve chose to, to uh, disobey God's word about the forbidden fruit, the Bible says that once Adam uh, partook in that fruit, all of humanity is now in a fallen, contaminated state. And under this disease we call sin. So no matter how strong this culture declares the concept of sin is not true. No matter how much they decide to belittle it, and no matter how many excuses they make for it, or no matter how many different names they call it, if God declares it to be sin, my friends, it is sin. What's the truth about sin? Sin is incompatible with God. That's literally the I got two key thoughts I want, I want to share with you today. But the first one is, is simply this. Sin is incompatible with God. Since God is holy, since God is dark, excuse me, since God is light, not darkness, since God is just and pure, all those different things, sin is not a part of him. It is incompatible with his character. It is incompatible with his content, uh, conduct and incompatible with him in general. But at the same time, a lifestyle of sin is incompatible with the Christian life. And that, I believe, is what John is addressing here in our passage today. Is that for somebody who has been regenerated by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God and has experienced the new birth, that now they are in a state of righteousness because the righteousness of God has been imputed on their account and now they are no longer in a condemned state. And so when God looks at us, he no longer sees a sinner. He sees a justified, redeemed saint. And here, John is combating these Gnostics in the ancient world, or they would later be known as Gnostics, who got the idea that, that a lot of different things about Jesus, they were uh, separating his humanity from his deity, but they were also going around saying that, hey, I have all this knowledge about God and it doesn't matter how I live. I can live any way I want to. I can partake in this indulgence here. I can live in this sin here without any consequences. But the reality is this, is if we call ourselves a Christian, then we will take sin seriously. That means when we do sin, we will confess it. When we do sin, we will repent of it. And when we do sin, we will by God's grace and with his assistance forsake it and seek to live a life style of his righteousness in our life. So what is the truth about sin? Well, of course, sin is incompatible with God, and a lifestyle of sin is incompatible with the Christian life. But I want to share with you a few thoughts today, three of them, from our passage about the truth of sin, that the Bible reveals the truth about sin. So look at verse 4. The first of three thoughts I want to share with you is sin is incompatible with the law of God. Let that sink in. Sin is incompatible with the law of God. 
in the book of Romans, the Bible speaks about how the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The purpose of the law, the purpose of that legal system in the Old Testament was to reveal that we cannot attain righteousness by our own account. We're going to fail in some way, shape, or form. And here in verse number four, the Bible says, whoever or whosoever commits. This gives the idea of, of one that breaks or, or one that violates the law. Have you ever violated the law in our society before? We all have. Whether it is speeding in a zone and getting a speeding ticket or parking in a, a parking space that we weren't supposed to park in or whatever the case may be, at some point in our lives, we've all violated man's laws. But here, this passage is not revealing the concept of man's law. It's God's law. And he says, whoever breaks or commits or transgresses or violates sin, they break the law of God. Now, this word sin... I know that we define it as missing the mark, but let me take you back to the ancient world. Let me take you back to these ancient gladi uh, gladiator games. And so if you could just imagine these two warriors are in this big coliseum and, and imagine one has a big old pole and one has a, a shield. And the idea here with this word sin is that a gladiator in those games would take this huge pole and they would swing it and miss their opponent. That's the idea here, is that the gladiator would swing and miss his mark. And then if you're riding in a chariot and, and you know that you need to take a right down this road to go back to Rome and take a left here and go back down to Laodicea, the similar idea is that if you're going this way and you know you didn't know that Rome was this way, but you kept on going, you missed the pathway. The idea here is simply this, is that we would take a, a gun or a bow and arrow, we shoot it and we miss the target, or we're driving on the road and we miss our exit. The idea here is simply this, is that when we commit sin, we've violated, we've broken God's law, and we've missed his mark of perfection. And it says, for sin is the transgression of the law. So here's the idea. Sin is incompatible with God's law. But a few thoughts I'm going to share with you. Think about this. Sin is living with rebelliousness towards God's law. You see, John is writing about the, the state of a sinner and the state of a redeemed saint. And the state of a sinner, those who have not attained salvation by God's grace, they are living in absolute total rebellion to God's word. It is total recklessness. The idea that, that hey, we're going to live according to our own way of life, not God's rule of life, without any care or concern. And so that's rebellion. Then the idea is not just living in open rebellion towards God's law, but living Sin is living without forgiveness towards God's law. We're living in, in this idea of rebellion, but then it goes further that, hey, I'm in this concept of rebellion. I'm rebellion against God's word, and I don't need God's forgiveness. That is a bad state to be in. But then it goes even further. Not only just rebelling and saying, I, I, don't, I don't need forgiveness, but then the idea of Sin is living without repentance towards God's law. But the reverse here is simply this, is that repentance, it literally means change of mind. 
And so this changing mentality about who God is, what God's word is, once that enters into your mind, you're going to be like, well, hey, I have violated God's law and I need God's forgiveness. So God, please forgive me. And then instead of living in open rebellion, you begin to live or try to live in open obedience. So John is reminding his listeners that you're either living in open rebellion or open obedience. Sin is incompatible with the law of God. Sin is incompatible with God, and a lifestyle of sin is incompatible with the Christian life. Listen, serious Christians take sin seriously, and that just simply means when we sin, we're going to confess it, we're going to repent of it, and we're going to do our best to forsake it and leave it behind. But secondly, let me draw your attention to verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. What is the truth about sin? Well, not only is it incompatible with God's law, but secondly, sin is incompatible with the Son of God. Sin is incompatible with the Son of God. Just as oil and water does not go together, we know that God and His law and His Son is incompatible with sin. Look at verse 5. John continues his discussion, but, but now he transitions his focus from off the transgressor unto the one who never transgressed, and that is Jesus. It says, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. This word for know, it is the intellectual knowledge. He says, you have the intellectual knowledge that Jesus was manifested. In other words, he was open for all to see visibly. To take away our sins. This first thought here, or sure, he comes from this first part of verse five. Christ has expiated us from the power of sin. The word expiated is a fancy theological term that simply means to remove the guilt of. So when we say that Christ is our expiation, it's literally saying that Jesus stepped in and not only did he pay our fine, he has removed our guiltiness from the law of God. Just as you might have gotten a speeding ticket in your life and you went to court and you had to go through that whole process and, and there the judge either said, hey, you need to go to dip class or I'm going to remove this off your record. The same idea here. Jesus, in a sense, is, is stepping in as our attorney and saying, I have removed that guilt and that penalty from your account. This word, take away, it's like this. Imagine you were in federal prison because you committed genocide and homicide. You're there because you killed a lot of people. And the record is just laid out and there's all this video evidence. Everything is there. You are clearly guilty. But by God's grace, Jesus stepped in and took an eraser and erased the entire account away. And so just as we can think about somebody who's committed the, 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 the most vile crime ever, that is like us in God's sight we are the criminal in God's eyes and he has stepped in and he has erased it from our account. And so I realized that, that, that the eternal power and bondage of sin no longer is affecting us, but we still live in this tainted flesh. And so we are gonna stumble and we're gonna fall. And that is when we seek God's forgiveness on a regular basis. 
But we are positionally no longer under the jurisdiction and the power and bondage of sin. And we can praise God for that today. But think about this. As we move forward here, the Bible goes on to say, and it says, the last part of verse 5, it says, And in him is no sin. Not only has Christ expiated us from the power of sin, but, but listen to this. Christ cannot engage in the practice of sin. Here in these verses, we read in theology, you could crack open all the different theological textbooks and you would begin to read this idea of the impeccability of Christ. That is the idea that it was not in Jesus's character or capacity to sin. He could not. I mean, he was unlike all of us. He was born of a virgin. He didn't sin. In fact, when, when Satan came to test him, even though in his greatest efforts, Christ couldn't even succumb to that temptation because it was not in his vocabulary. Jesus was sinless in thought, word, and deed. And so because here the Bible says in him is no sin, I was reminded of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. Remember that verse that Pastor English used to quote all the time? That he who knew no sin became sin for us so that his righteousness could be applied to our account. Now, as we come to verse six, I'm not gonna try to declare that I know everything about verse six and verse nine. Because in fact, in the entirety of 1 John, these two verses are the most controversial among scholars. And today I have not officially arrived on the meaning of these two verses. And in fact, there are four major views on how we can handle verses 6 and verse 9. And, and I'm not going to dive in deep to all these, but, but you have this perspective of the willful sin. You have this idea of the habitual sin. You have this idea of ideal character. And then you have the idea of new man. And as we think about this verse and, and verse 9, it almost seems like it is a total contradiction to what John said in chapter 1. I mean, here he says that, that if you abide in Jesus, you do not sin. But he said in chapter 1 that if we claim we have not sinned, we make God a liar and the truth is not in us. So which one is it, John? Well, scholars have really debated about all these different things. And I think there's a level of truth to all of these four major interpretations. But where I've come to land is simply this thought. Those who abide in Christ live a lifestyle characterized by habitual righteousness and holiness. Instead of lawlessness and disobedience. In other words, when we read verse six, it says, whoever abides in him does not sin. And then it says, whoever sins has not seen him, neither known him. Remember the idea that John is writing here. He goes back and he says that in chapter one, he says, we have seen him with our eyes. We have touched him with our hands. We have heard him with our ears. And then he writes the idea of the polar opposites. You're either in the light or you're in darkness. You're either of the truth or you're of error. You're either a child of God or you're a child of Satan. And so here the idea is simply this, is that you're either living in a declared state of righteousness or you're living in a declared state of sinfulness. And that's what I think John is referring to here. Not referring to that you got to live a totally perfect life because we can't do that but that positionally in Christ, we are no longer sinners. We are redeemed saints. 
Now, I'm still a fallen sinner, but in God's eyes, I've been saved by his grace. And so here, if you're here today and you've never experienced God's grace and salvation, then you are right here with what John is saying. You are a sinner and you have not seen God and you do not know him. This idea of knowing him intimately. You might have the intellectual knowledge about Jesus dying on the cross and he was buried and rose again, but you don't have the intimate knowledge that, that he is now your Lord and your Savior. But then... Verse seven, it says, little children, a customary term that John uses throughout this book. He says, let no man deceive you. This means don't let anybody trick you or fool you. And he says, he that does righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. In other words, John is saying that if you are in Christ, the works that you do in God's eyes, are righteous. I'm thankful for that because in my own efforts, that is, his righteousness is now in, on my account. Like, like, listen, I could go to every church in America. I could visit every pastor to pray over me. I could visit every Catholic priest to do the Hail Marys over me and throw the holy smoke and holy water over me. I could go to confession. I could go see the Pope at the Vatican. I could go get baptized on my account and your account and, and all of my ancestors' accounts and, and all of that. That will not stack up to attain righteousness. In fact, the Bible says my righteousness is filthy rags. And that's why we need righteousness of Christ in our life. Christ cannot engage in the practice of sin. He is sinless. And here it's demonstrating all these different things in that now when Christ, when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, he sees us as followers of the perfect sinless Savior. And in his eyes, we are now declaring his righteousness in our life. But now look at verse 8. If we think about this idea that, that sin is incompatible with, with the Son of God, and how he's expiated us from the power of sin. And he can't engage in the practice of sin. But, but listen to this. As I read verse 8, I think about this. Christ has exterminated the devil's plan of sin. Just as you would go out there and, and let's just, God forbid this ever happening. But, but let's say a fire breaks out here. And, and you go, you get the fire extinguisher. You, take, you, get, you get it working and you exterminate that fire. You get it gone. Or you got a house that has been infected by insects and you have the exterminator come and do all the spraying to get rid of all those bugs. The Bible is teaching us here in verse 8 that Jesus came to exterminate the devil's plan of sin. Here we see this, uh, this uh, the Bible says he that commits sin is of the devil. In other words, he's, remember, he's given the idea that you're either in God's family or Satan's family. And if you haven't been saved by God's grace, you're not in God's family, you're in Satan's family. And now you're a sinner, you're committing sin, and you are from your father, the devil. And he says, for the devil sinned from the beginning. This is going back to the moment that we believe in, in heaven when Satan led a revolt against God and was kicked out of heaven. And it says, for this very purpose, for this very reason, the Son of God was manifested, made visible for all to see that he might destroy the works of the devil. 
Have you ever seen that trick that people like to play on, on others? They take a, a fishing line that's very hard to see and they tie it somehow in a doorway so that when somebody walks through, they're going to trip over it and fall. That would be pretty bad if your son or your daughter or your, your mother or your father played that trick on you. But the idea here, this word destroy, it's as if I noticed that that fishing line was there and I came in and I unloosed it or untied it or took it away. Hear this word for destroy, it literally means that Jesus came and destroyed the devil's plan by unloosing it. So now it has no longer effect on those who are in Christ. And, and here we, we think about his works. And so we go back to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 when he led that revolt against God. And, and to our best knowledge, a third of the angels left heaven with him. And he came down to this earth and, and deceived Adam and Eve into partaking in that forbidden fruit. And then in that moment, this idea of sin has entered into all of humanity. And now we're all contaminated by this sin. And then the devil's plan throughout all the generations was to stop the Messiah from coming. And so we read about this where he was trying to kill God's man Moses in Exodus. In Judges and Ruth, he was trying to, to get the people of Israel to intermingle with the Canaanites so that the seed would be diluted and the Messiah would not come and so that they would worship all these false gods. And the same thing happened in the Kings and Chronicles. And then the captivity came and the Israelites were carried off to Babylon. And there I just know Satan thought he was winning when all the Israelites were bowing down, worshiping this false image, except Daniel. And God had a purpose and a plan. And then he eventually sent his people back. And in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, we see that, that just like in the Judges and the Kings and Chronicles, Satan had a plan to try to, to get these Israelites straying away from worshiping exclusively God into intermingling with all these other people. But God eventually raised up Mary and Joseph. And the gospels reveal to us that Jesus came born in Bethlehem. And in those early years of the life of Christ, Herod tried to kill him, all part of Satan's plan. And Jesus was driven to the cross And perhaps that was part of Satan's plan. But what Satan has failed to realize is that he still submits to the sovereignty of God. And that it was God's plan from the very ages of eternity past that his son would come and, and die a sinner's death and take upon sin on his own being to pay our sin debt. And then surely he thought he won. There, he ensured that, that the, the tomb would be sealed and it would be guarded by the best of the Roman officials. But the angel came to declare the tomb was empty. And right now, Satan is still attempting in his best of efforts to keep as many people away from the truth of the gospel and under the bondage of sin. That's why there's all this religion today that is so contrary to the word of God. That's why there's all this disease and death and destruction and, and turmoil in our world because we're living in, in this world of sin and the only way to be rescued is through Jesus. And he has exterminated Satan's plan. When Jesus died on the cross, he said it was finished and in that moment it was finished forever and Satan's time is running 
short. Sin is incompatible with the Son of God. Sin is incompatible with the law of God, and it's incompatible with God in, in general. And it's incompatible with the lifestyle of a Christian. But I want to share with you thirdly and finally from verses 9 and 10. What is the truth about sin? Well, thirdly, sin is incompatible with the Spirit of God. Sin is incompatible with the Spirit of God. In verse number 9, it's, all, it's almost here we go back to verse number 6. But, but this time, instead of only using the idea of committing sin, John brings in this idea of being born of God. This means experiencing the new birth. In other words, a child of God will possess the spirit of God. That's what we see in verse number nine. A child of God will possess the spirit of God. Doctrinally speaking, remember John is trying to address these, these three questions. And the first one is simply this. Do you believe Christ is the son of God? And if you do believe Christ is the son of God, then you have received the spirit of God. Look at verse nine. It says, whoever is born of God does not commit sin. In other words, that, that positionally we're in Christ and we're as if we're justified and, and no longer a, a committed a felon that's violated God's law. And then he says, for his seed. This is a, a similar word that would be used between a man and a woman and then the woman eventually giving birth to a daughter. But in other words, we are his sons and daughters. We've been birthed and grafted into his family and adopted. And it says that those people cannot sin because he is born of God. The first thought here is a child of God will possess the spirit of God. But another thought here, found in the first part of verse 10, a child of God will practice obedience to God, as we've already talked about before. Remember, the first question was doctrinal that John is addressing in this book. Do you believe Christ is the Son of God? The second question is moral. Do you obey the Word of God? Remember, he's trying to combat against these false teachers and these guys who were, and these ladies perhaps who were living a life that was just totally foreign to the lifestyle of a Christian. And he gives the moral test in verse number 10. He says, in this, the children of God are manifest. In other words, they are made open for all to visibly see. And the children of the devil. That is, we will practice obedience or we will practice rebellion. The second thought is simply this. A child of God will practice obedience to God. Listen, I'm not saying we have to be perfect. I don't believe John is saying we have to reach this level of state where we are no longer sinning in our life. No, it's literally impossible. At some point, we're going to mess up in our thoughts or the words we say or the things we do. But what I am simply saying is this, is that if we know Christ as Savior, if the Spirit of God lives in us, when we do sin, we will be convicted by that sin. And we will confess it, we will repent of it, and we will seek by God's grace to forsake that sin and leave it behind. Not to say we won't trip up and fall. But here, this is the moral test. You're either in God's family or the devil's family. And I know that's not very popular today. But it is the truth about sin. You're either living in sin and under the wrath of God or you're living in God's grace and under his mercy. 
But the final thought is from verse 10, the last part here. A child of God will not just possess the spirit of God and practice obedience to God, but also a child of God will promote the love of God. This is the social test. A doctrinal test. Do you believe that Christ is the son of God? A moral test. Do you obey the word of God? And then the social test is do you display the love of God? Listen, if we claim that Jesus is the son of God and he's our Lord and Savior, but we don't live like he is, then most likely we're not part of his family. And if we claim that Christ is the son of God and that he's our Lord and Savior, but we're not loving our neighbors and our brothers and sisters, then chances are we don't know this Jesus. Look at verse 10. It says, whoever does not righteousness is not of God. Gives this idea of obedience. But then it says, neither he that loves his brother. We live in a professing world. I profess to be a Christian, but my actions do not display it. I profess that I'm a Christian, but I display hatred to my family, my friends, my foes, and my church family. Today, my friends, the greatest threat to the gospel is the professing Christian who does not obey God's word and display God's love. Sin is incompatible with God. A lifestyle of sin is incompatible with the Christian life. If we call ourselves Christians, then we are going to take sin seriously. But did you hear about young Freddie? Freddie was just a a young little boy in fourth grade. He had three siblings and lived with his mom and dad in, in a nice middle-class home, a two-story home exact. And that night for dinner, his mother made his favorite dessert, chocolate chip cookies. And she made so many, she had 20 left over. And so she took all 20 of them and put them in the cookie jar and decided that Every day that week, she was going to give all four of her children one cookie to take to school so that each of them could have one cookie for lunch every day. And bedtime came, and, and Johnny's there in his room, and he began to pace in his room back and forth. He just couldn't get any sleep that night. It was about 1 a.m., and, and he's just wrestling in his mind, should I go down and, and take some of those cookies? <laughs> Maybe you've been in that situation before. So there goes little Freddie, and he's making his way down the staircase through the living room into the kitchen, and he finds his way through the cookie jar, and he opens up the lid, and he takes four cookies, puts the lid back on, and he makes his way back up to his room. And while he was up on the way up the staircase, he begins to eat the cookie, and some of the crumbs tumble down to the ground. He didn't notice them. And next morning... His mom goes through to wake up all his siblings and himself. And, and as she's walking down the staircase, she notices those crumbs sitting there. She opens up the cookie jar and she realizes four cookies are no longer there. She didn't say anything. She acted as if nothing went missing. And so she passed out four more to her children to take for lunch. And time goes on, they get back home and, and time for bed and they are all tucked in and Johnny is pacing the floors again. <laughs> and he goes back down and takes two more this time. 
And this time, as he's going back up to his staircase, he begins to eat the last cookie at his, at his door. And a couple crumbs fall to the ground. So his mom gets up and notices the cookies there, but perhaps uh, one of the siblings could have framed Freddie. So she goes on about her business and packs all the siblings and all of them a cookie again for the next day of lunch. And, and that day comes uh, to a close, and there they're all there, and Johnny just couldn't sleep anymore that night. But this time, instead of going in at 1 or 2 in the morning, he goes out about 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And as he goes down the staircase, he did not see his mother sitting on the couch in the dark. And he walks over to the cookie jar, opens it up, and there his mom walks in and says, What you doing, Freddie? <laughs> We've all been there. But it's not our mother who caught us stealing from the cookie jar. It is God who caught us violating his law. But the good news is this. I believe that John is reiterating what, what, what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you're in God's family, you are no longer condemned. You've been justified. But if you are in the devil's family, you're under a condemned state and you need to get right with God. My friends, I know it's not popular, but this is the truth about sin. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.